Well, good morning, community. My name is John Perrine. I'm the pastor here for any of you who haven't met me yet. And uh, I know that was a lot of information about generosity. I do just want to thank you uh, as a community. We here at Lincoln Park have also, over the last two months, not only met but exceeded our giving budget. And so I just want you to give yourselves a round of applause here for really your, your generosity. Uh, we, we are one of the smaller locations of community, and yet here in the city we have the potential to be one of the more generous sitting in a very wealthy neighborhood. And so you guys just continue to amaze, to bless me and, and to bless our community and to create opportunities for us to keep expanding what we're doing, even as we've been able to bring on Joshua, who is leading us in worship this morning. It's because of your generosity. So thank you. Um, this morning, we're going to be closing out this series that has been a, a bit of a short series. And I mentioned before the service this morning, it, we've opened up the biggest questions that are searched right now online and have been trying to wrestle with them with you, searching for answers. And so the first week we talked about, can faith and doubt coexist? What does it look like for the tension between faith and doubt to live in the life of a Christian? Last week, we talked about why does God allow suffering? Now, if you are interested in those questions, if you feel like there was more we didn't cover, you're right. Uh, those were big questions that we took a week for. This week, though, I think the question is actually connected to those first two questions. Can faith and doubt coexist? Why does God allow suffering? And it's this actually very huge question. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? Now, trust for many of us is a delicate thing. I have a few photos here of trust that is sometimes broken. So, for instance, you have a lollipop that you think looks delicious, like a panda that you're going to eat, and next thing you know, oh, it's, it's a little bit of a duplicitous panda. Uh, or another example could be the 1980s superstar, Rick Astley. Anyone here remember Rick and his monumental hit, promising that he was never going to give you up, only to discover the following year, 1988, that Rick was actually giving up on love? It's kind of devastating, but this may be the worst one. Uh, Krispy Kreme box sitting in your staff room. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's some, someone still hungry up in the balcony, only to discover that, oh, April Fool's Day. Uh, if, you, if you see these, then you can understand why some of us do have trust issues. But the reality is trust, trust is delicate, isn't it? Trust is something that needs to be pondered, needs to be built up, needs to be stored. And there are some tensions right now in our culture that are causing not just Christians, but really society as a whole to no longer trust the Bible. This is huge. This is serious. Uh, in the last year alone, the American World View Inventory did research on Americans' perception of the Bible, and they discovered that in the last 20 years, Americans who report that they believe the Bible is the inspired true word of God is down from 61% to 40%, a 21 percentage point drop that is just unheard of in the landscape of American thought. Uh, similarly, they noticed a 50% decrease in those who responded holding a biblical worldview in America where it used to be in 2001 around 12%. It's now all the way down to 6%. So the point is that trust in the Bible is declining. Uh, there's a very real sense in which trust in the Bible as God's true inspired world, uh, word is going down. So this morning I want to ask, why is it that we have been losing trust in the Bible? And what would it take for us to be a community here at Community Lincoln Park 
that really sets our hope, that sets our foundation on this word of God, that we could each say that we trust the Bible. In order to dive in, uh, I, I'm kind of excited about this talk, by the way. I, uh, I love the Bible. I studied the Bible for my undergrad degree. I talk about the Bible a lot. So this is something I love talking about. For you, this may be a brand new, why are we talking so much about the Bible? But I think some of these questions are really going to resonate. Uh, the first observation I want to make is that one of our biggest challenges right now in our current moment in history is that we are very interested and aware of scientific and technological advances. Some of you I know in this community are working on the frontiers of scientific investigation. One of the initial huge problems that people often have with the Bible is this feeling that the Bible is either against science or doesn't teach science or that science has somehow outpaced the Bible. And so uh, the first observation I just want to make about that is to give you a little orientation to the Bible as something that's, that's really not meant to be a scientific handbook. In fact, I think this is one of our first problems when we go to the Bible attempting to discover answers to our contemporary scientific questions, and we discover the Bible is trying to teach us something very different. Uh, to help give just a little orientation to this, we wanted to rely on our friends over at The Bible Project. Any of you ever watched videos of The Bible Project? They've got great stuff on YouTube. It's all free, but they have a wonderful three-minute introduction to why it's important to see the Bible is not, it's not a scientific handbook. The Bible is actually literature. So let's go ahead and throw this video on. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures begin to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. 
Why did they put them all together like this? Well, all together, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff, was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that was a fire hose of information, and yet I can guarantee you that I could have spent the next 50 minutes trying to instill all of that into a sermon and I couldn't have captured it as expertly or beautifully as the Bible Project was able to. Uh, feel free again if you want to check out more of their stuff. They've got really helpful resources. However, the main point I want to leave with you from that video is that the Bible is more about this vision of how God is redeeming and restoring the world than it is answering all of the specific scientific questions that we have today. However, that doesn't mean that there still aren't some very serious tension points, some reliability factors that are still challenging. And so I want to address three of them with you. The first one is going to be the historical reliability of the Bible. You may sometimes have heard this. There are challenges and contested areas and everything from the Old Testament. You'll hear scholars debate how far the flood uh, went out in Noah's day, what extent a flood occurred or didn't occur. You'll hear about the Israelites wandering the wilderness and whether or not we have found archaeological evidence for the remains of Israelites who would have died before they entered the promised land. You'll hear about a number, a number of other archaeological tension points with the historical reliability of the Bible. Yet, Really, what this question boils down to, if you've ever been nervous about the historical reliability, if anyone's ever challenged the historical reliability of the Bible, there, there's really just one claim in the Bible that I want to present to you this morning. Uh, again, as someone who has been studying the Bible for a long time, who's been wrestling with the Bible, who's read all kinds of scholarship and literature and historical criticism on the Bible, I've got one question for you that you need to answer. And that question is, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Because ultimately, for all of the historical questions, they are important. It's worth reading, digging around, uh, being interested in them if, if that's something that interests you. Uh, the real question of faith is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what's challenging about that question. Scientifically speaking, uh, it does not seem likely that Jesus did rise from the dead. Do any of you know anyone else who has ever risen from the dead? Uh, do any of you know anyone else historically who's risen from the dead? No, this is kind of a unique phenomenon that is difficult to quantify when it comes to evidence or science. And so the real question 
the, the real act of faith that we have been presented with as Christians or non-Christians alike is whether or not we believe the testimony, the witness of those who claim that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. So the way that this argument typically goes is that we look specifically at one document. That's our oldest document closest to Jesus's life, and that is the Gospel of John. Uh, interestingly, in ancient text, we have very significant uh, historical pieces of literature that have a lot of evidence for them. So for instance, uh, Homer in the Iliad was written around 800 BC. Our earliest copy we have is 400 BC. There's a time gap of 400 years. You can see this on the screen. Uh, Tacitus and his Annals, which we generally trust to be mostly historically reliable, was written in 100 AD, but the closest manuscript we have is 1050 AD, a gap of 950 years. But here's the remarkable thing. In John's Gospel, we have a manuscript that was discovered in Egypt in the 1920s that was dated to roughly 125 AD, just 50 years after the Gospel of John would have been written. I mean, that's within a lifetime. We have the actual manuscripts of someone who claims they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Uh, additionally, another point that's often brought up in this argument is that when it comes to copies of manuscripts, I mean, how reliable is this testimony of John? Do we know this is what John actually wrote and thought. Uh, again, the Iliad, which is one of our most significant ancient works, has 800 copies. Seems pretty good. Tacitus's Annals just have 31 copies. That's not a ton, but the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament, we have over 6,000 manuscripts really dated within 100 years or so of being written down. The point is that when it comes to historical reliability, this doesn't mean that you have to accept the claims of John. No, that's actually a huge question of faith. But when it comes to reliability, at least, there is more evidence weighted in favor of the credibility of claims being made by the New Testament than any other ancient work in any other sphere. This, this is interesting, right? Some of you who are perhaps more heady you're, you're with me right now. You're loving this sermon. You are like, yes, I did not sign up for a college lecture, but I am so glad I am receiving one <laughs> right now in this moment. Uh, here's the thing. Historical reliability is an important question. Or I don't think this is really the most pressing question right now. I don't think this question is what has caused a trust dip in the Bible to occur these last 20 years. I think the real challenge that we are facing as a church and we are facing as Christians is the question of cultural reliability. Is the Bible culturally reliable? Um, one of the big proponents who's been pressing on this question is a guy named Steven Pink Pinkner. Uh, any of you who have read Steven Pinkner, he's an intellectual. He, his, his most famous book is called Enlightenment Now. And Pinkner notes that really, if you think about it, culture is getting better. Culture is progressing. So Pinkner's whole argument is, to be a human now in the year 2022 is so much better than to have been a human alive on this planet in the year 1022. And so that, that arc of how science and technology and really culture itself, this culture we live in in the city, that arc proves that progress is being made, progress is inevitable, and what does progress culturally mean? Well, progress means that we're leaving behind the old, immature ways of being religious, and instead we are advancing as a society to this 
utopian vision where we will no longer need God, where instead our sort of collective efforts at human flourishing are going to lead to peace and stability and happiness for all people. I think this is, this is a compelling and an interesting claim. Uh, if you haven't read any of Pinkner or anyone who's with him in this sort of circle, uh, there's a certain case to be made that when you live in the 21st century, it does feel better probably than having lived 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Uh, my wife and I were just over at friend's house. They're sort of backed onto this field and one of the older homes, probably 100 years old, uh, in their sort of lot had an outhouse an old ancient outhouse tucked into the corner and we walked past and thought, man, can you imagine having to walk from your house in the dead of night, in the dead of winter to this outhouse? I mean, that's just terrible. Things seem to be getting better, don't they? And yet, when it comes to this sort of claim or this trajectory of progress, I do just want to pause and have us think quite deeply about if this claim does actually hold up, is everything getting better? Um, one of the easiest ways, I think, to talk about this is fashion. So who here was around in the 1970s? Anybody? I know there should only be a few hands. A couple, a couple of you were around in the 1970s. So I just want to observe, in the 1970s, this was in. Uh, this, this worked. This was rockin'. And if you lived in the 1970s and you walked around and you saw someone dressed like this, you would not think anything was off, right? These people were not being extra fashionable. They weren't trying extra hard. They weren't boldly daring where no one else had gone. No, this, this was culture. And therefore, culture, as the 1970s knew it, was good. Uh, if you track fashion today, uh, you would notice that in the 1990s, things got a little strange didn't they? Uh, I am a child of the 90s. I uh, remember explicitly a conversation with my mother where she asked me, why are your pants sagging down so low? Why can I see your underwear? And I responded, because it's comfortable and it's what everyone does, mom. This is normal. Uh, now, uh, as a millennial, I found myself 10 years ago when I uh, was getting married and I finally had a wife who could offer me vision of what fashion was meant to look like, instruct me that, you know, the, the skinnier the jeans, the more tightly they clung to your legs, the, the more athletic and fashionable you would be, uh, only to discover to my horror in the last three years, for those of you who are actually fashionable and tracking with these things, that the 1990s are back again, aren't they? Uh, I am no longer in fashion with my skinny jeans, and in fact, there are many TikTok videos of millennials and Gen Zers debating the validity of whose fashion was better. Now, my point in all of this, as we leave this photo up on the screen, <laughs> my point is much bigger than fashion. My point is that culturally, whatever culture you find yourself in, you assume this is just the way culture is meant to be, don't you? That's how culture works. Culture is this complex web of judgments that's telling us what is in and what is out, what is valuable, what is reasonable, and what is not valuable. Or reasonable. So what that then means for us is that when we come to the Bible, the first thing you're going to notice if you, if you spend any amount of time in the Bible is that the culture in which the Bible was written is vastly different to the culture we find ourselves in today. It's vastly different. So in the Old Testament particularly, which is normally where 
if you're just reading the Bible on your own, you're going to have the most trouble. In the Old Testament, it's written in a culture that was tribalistic, a culture that lived uh, agriculturally dependent on the weather. There was this complex system of worship to various gods that was normally about your survival. If you worshiped the god of rain, it was because you needed the rain in order for your crops to grow. And you would offer animal sacrifices to these gods. You would form these dense political webs of relationships amongst your family and your tribe. Because if you didn't stick together, then someone else was going to come in and either take your food or take your crops or take your land, and then you'd be done. You'd be gone. This is the culture in which the Old Testament was written. Yet, what's so remarkable about this culture is that as you read the Old Testament, within this very specific human culture, God's word both enters into it. In fact, one of the most remarkable things is that God doesn't just reject the animal sacrifice system. Instead, God sort of takes this sacrificial system up into the true worship of the one true God. He, he not only accommodates to where the culture's at, but then God refashions and reforms that culture. In fact, if you track in the Old Testament over and over and over again, so many of the tension points, the areas in which we find the most cultural rub today with the Old Testament, are normally points where God has entered into the culture as it stood, uh, issues like polygamy or circumcision or even slave code laws in the Old Testament that were later horrendously abused in American history. These aspects, these dynamics of culture, God enters into, but then normally in often profound ways, God reforms and refashions that culture in alignment with this vision, as the Bible Project video showed, of what a kingdom centered on the presence and worship of God that is extending out in blessing to the world would look like. Some of the most beautiful parts of the Old Testament are where you discover that the Israelites, though they are given clear instructions on how to order and frame their society so that they too can be good and flourish, is not actually just so that they can possess or keep close this blessing. In fact, Israel is always called to be blessed by God so that they can extend the blessing of God out to the entire world. If that's what's happening in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, uh, something I would encourage you to look into if this is a question that uh, leans heavy on your heart, is the way in which Roman society, which was its own complex web of culture and judgment, Roman society was utterly transformed by the even more provocative claims of this group of people who called themselves followers of Jesus. In fact, there's one book by an Oxford historian named Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods. And Larry Hurtado, as a historian, just notes that there were these practices of this early group of Jesus follower, practices that involved radical notions like breaking ethnic boundaries, sitting Jews and Gentiles together, caring for the poor, this group of followers of Jesus who would actually welcome in those who were looked down upon in society, uh, picking up those children left in trash heaps that was part of Roman custom. If you didn't want a child, you would just abandon it. Uh, this, this was a group of people who resisted these cultural practices, the things that were just looked upon as normal and ordinary, and in doing so, actually upended the entire social system of Rome till within hundreds of years, Roman society had been totally transformed in new directions by this commitment to Jesus. 
So if that's the case, here's the real challenging question for us this morning. If we live in a culture, a culture that does have many good things about it, things that seem to be progressing, things that seem to be getting better, and we read this text that's written to another culture in which God is speaking transcendent and eternal truths to transform and refashion that culture, it's likely that there are some things about our culture that God's word is going to affirm and to encourage and actually as the people of God to push us forward in. But isn't it also likely that there's probably some aspects of our culture in which we don't actually see fully what is or isn't working about how we're doing it now. And maybe this word of God needs to also refashion and reform our culture as much as it needed to refashion and reform the cultures to which it was written. Now, I'm not pretending that that process is easy to sort out. And you probably have five or six key ideological questions that you want me right now to just speak to and tell you exactly what the Bible says. And, and that, to be honest, is where, of course, the work now needs to begin. How, how will we as a community center ourselves on God's word? How will we as a community be humble enough to let God's word critique these values and judgments that we may just assume to be normal. This just is how it is. This is 1970s clothing. This is how it should look. And instead, God's word is coming and it's redirecting. It's, as the Apostle Paul would later say, it's, it's encouraging us. It's rebuking us. It's redirecting us. This is what God's word is meant to do. Uh, if that's the question of cultural, cultural reliability, and if this is something that, understandably, again, I, I just want to acknowledge, this is hard. This is probably the greatest struggle, particularly in the city, of why people are trusting the Bible less and less. They're looking at it, and they just don't feel like culturally it feels right. Something doesn't feel off about how the culture describes things. Here's the last encouragement I would offer to you if you're wrestling with this question. Um, there's one other huge cultural question to ask, and that is, how did Jesus, who was removed by hundreds of years, from the Old Testament culture. How did Jesus view the Old Testament and really how did Jesus view the scriptures in general? And here's a passage from Matthew 5. This is consistent across Jesus' whole life and Jesus' ministry. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus' challenge to us is that this, this word from Old to New Testament is not just their word, is not just an add-on accessory. This is the word of God which Jesus came to fulfill and which Jesus holds to to this day. So to follow Jesus, my encouragement to you, and I know this is hard. I know this is particularly hard in the city. I do not believe we can follow Jesus if we do not hold on to the word of God. Now, I know that that means there are lots of questions to ponder. There are big conversations for us, even as a community, to have. But my encouragement to you is that Jesus, Jesus is the one who is offering you his word. This is actually Jesus's word. If you love Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, then this is a word that Jesus is extending to you. Let me just quickly hit the last 
issue, which I think if historical reliability and cultural reliability are two questions people are asking, here's maybe the final tension point uh, that you yourself might be wrestling with. And that is, is the Bible personally reliable? If any of you uh, are like me, I know many of us here have grown up in church contexts, have experienced different churches in different capacities, have been in various small groups, have been discipled by various leaders, have sat under different pastors, and the, the truth be told, the reckoning that is happening right now in this cultural moment is that there are many places in which the integrity of Christian leaders and the integrity of specific churches has been tested against key questions of abuse, sexuality, uh, honesty, how they use finances. And as the integrity of the church has been tested, we have been seeing and have been hearing stories over and over again of how unreliable these people and these churches have been in handling the word of God, in giving you the word of God, in teaching the word of God. In fact, my guess is that in this room, there are a number of you who have personally experienced some form of mistreatment or some loss of trust in someone who claimed to be teaching you the Bible, who claimed to be using the Bible, and in fact was not. And so if that's you, um, I just want you to know that, that my heart breaks for you and that I too know your pain. I think it's actually very difficult right now especially in Chicagoland, to avoid any of the earthquakes that have been leadership failures in particularly, people, teachers of the Bible who I know I trusted, who I followed, who I sat under, who ended up revealing themselves to be horribly flawed, and thus their whole teaching is sort of compromised and questioned. If that's you, I, I just want to sit with you in the pain and acknowledge there is a reason why your trust has been strained. There is a reason why trust is lost. Even those funny photos at the beginning of this talk, I mean, something has happened to you that has caused you to lose your trust in the Bible, and it's normally been connected to a leader or to a community that has harmed you in proximity to their use of this Word of God. If that is you, I just want to offer you my own story as an encouragement um, even as a chance for you to ponder and meditate this morning what the invitation of Jesus is for you as you are wrestling with this word of God uh, that he is extending to you. Um, when I was about 20 years old, I was sitting in a dorm room uh, just down the way over on LaSalle Street near Chicago Avenue. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. I had been studying the Bible, and yet I already, at the age of 20, had been surrounded by some toxic church cultures. I was reading all kinds of philosophy that was pressing against all of the cultural claims of the Bible. I was reading historical criticism that was straining against all the historical reliability of the Bible. And there was this evening in my dorm room, I don't know if any of you have had these nights, where I was sitting by myself and I was reading a textbook on theology, and I just felt myself pondering, like, is this right? <laughs> is this word the right word? Uh, is the Bible trustworthy? Do I trust the Bible? Is this actually a book that I want to give my life to? I mean, I'm 20 years old. This, this is a heavy and weighty book. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of big questions I'm going to have to wrestle through. There's a lot of ways that I'm going to have to not conform uh, to the culture that is emerging around me, to easier avenues that I could be walking down. And as I was sitting there that night, 
I just felt myself have a genuine moment of doubt in which I was asking, should I trust this? Or is there something else to trust? And here's just my genuine, gentle, pastoral heartbeat for you. I, I sat and stared at, at these other options of like, do I trust myself to, to progress? Do I trust myself to science? Do I trust myself to, to love? Do I trust myself to social justice? Like, is there something else that I can trust? And as I pressed on each of those, I just over and over and over again felt that every one of them w- was going to be far more shaky far more chaotic than the word that claims to be the revelation of God, the creator of heaven and earth for us. And so in that night, as I was staring at my options, in a moment of doubt, but also in a moment of faith, I found myself realizing I have no other foundation on which to build my life than the word of God offered to me through Jesus Christ. This, this, has, this has to be it. I, I can't dig any deeper. At some level, this has to be the bedrock at which I build out my life and beliefs. Now, to be so clear, as that moment happened at the tender age of 20, uh, so much has happened since then. So many avenues of exploration opened up. So many questions needed to be explored. So many faith communities were walked through by me that added more to the pain, to the hurt, to the loss around what it looks like to follow the Bible. And yet, I'm just here as your pastor to offer witness to you that I have found, as I have wrestled with this question, there is no bedrock more secure than committing yourself, even if you don't always understand it, even if you're going to have to wrestle with it, to live your life centered on this word of God. Uh, There's Uh, a beautiful quote by a pastor named William Sloan Coffin. And Coffin, as he too has wrestled with this question, has noted that uh, it is a mistake to look at the Bible to close a discussion. The Bible instead seeks to open one up. It's where I just want to end with the encouragement to you. This talk is not meant to tell you how you are supposed to believe around key culturally contested issues. Instead, this talk is a call to our whole community to anchor yourself on something deeper. If you can commit with us to trust this word, to center your life on this word that Jesus offers you, then I can guarantee you, you won't immediately find all the answers. In fact, there may be some questions you wrestle with for the rest of your life, but this word will guide you as it opens up a discussion, and it will lead you back to Jesus. So let me go ahead and pray for us here as we turn to a time of communion. And as I pray for us, I just specifically want to pray for those of you who have experienced hurt or harm or a loss of trust when it comes to the Bible. That for perhaps for many of us even in this room, there has been a real sense of disillusionment, a disappointment, and a lingering pain in which someone used the Bible in a way that God did not intend. When the Bible was used either to control or to manipulate, 
to shut down a conversation when the Bible was always meant to open one up. And if that's you this morning, I just want to pray as we move towards this time of communion that you would be able to receive this word from Jesus again. That you would be able to see, even as you cup your hands to receive this cup of his body and his blood, that it is actually Jesus's word. It was always meant to be a word that came to you from Jesus. And whatever leader, whatever church teacher got in between you and Jesus, I pray this morning, Jesus would be the one to lean in and to take your hands and to draw you back to him, to give you this word afresh. Jesus, even now, we thank you for this gift that is your body, this gift that is your blood. We thank you for the gift that is your word to us. May we, Jesus, in the midst of a culture that is ever moving around us, may we become a church and a community of people that anchor our lives in your word. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.